A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored Lezecher Nishmas Chaim Ben Svi Hirsch Kleinberg, by his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Howard Kleinberg was born in 1925 in Vierbnik, Poland. He was the youngest of 10 children in October 1942 when the Vierbnik ghetto was liquidated and his parents were sent to Treblinka. He was sent to the Starachowice slave labor camp. From there he was sent to Auschwitz, where he arrived on Tisha B'Av in 1944. He later spent time in the Mauthausen, Gusen, and in the Neuengamme, uh, concentration camps, ultimately being liberated in Bergen-Belsen. After the war, he was an active member of the Sheiris Apleta in the Bergen-Belsen Displaced Persons Camp until he immigrated to Toronto in 1947. While he never forgot the evil that he witnessed and experienced, he chose to live his life together with his wife of 70 years, also survive her, let her, may, her may she live and be well, with tremendous joy, optimism, and a deep faith. So this uh, episode is a, is a little bit about the DP camps, displaced persons camps in the aftermath of the war and the Holocaust, which I'll get to in a second. I just want to make a, a clarification from last episode we had on South African Jewry. got a lot of great feedback uh, from our knowledgeable and dedicated listeners about uh, South African, the history of South African Jewry, and of course... Um, Many emphasize that uh, we didn't uh, cover fully cover the topics, so I'm more than happy to do a part two um, if you're interested in sponsoring. And in general, if you're interested in, in the sponsorships, you can please be in touch with me about sponsorships, lectures, virtual tours, and stuff like that. Um, but specifically, there was a, an issue that uh, that I got I got an, I was inundated. With, uh, with mail about this issue that I neglected to mention about the tenure of Rav Moshe Sternbuch, may he live and be well, as a rabbi in Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, so the first, I, I, the first few, few emails and messages I got about that, I decided to tell the truth, that it was a uh, honest, uh, inadvertent omission. I forgot about it, you know, um, I I know I, I know about and he has a yeshiva that's actually across the street from my house in Beit Shemesh. He lives in Harnov, but he has a yeshiva. His son runs uh, to, literally across the street from my house, 
and uh, and he comes there once a week. So you see him as the Rosh Hashiva in, in Israel. You see him as the uh, head of the Eid Haredes in Yerushalayim. And, you know, you tend to forget the association with South Africa. So I forgot. simply uh, an omission. But after I got like 10 or 15 emails, I decided I needed to revise my answer. It can't be just I forgot. I'm getting like, I got hammered. I never got so many letters about one thing since I started Jewish History Soundbites. How'd you forget Rabbi Sternbach? All these, everyone, how could you forget about him? And, and he was such a leader in South African Jewry. And how could you do that? You, was that by mistake? Was it on purpose? So um, I had to come up with a better answer. So I quickly looked up the dates that he was there. And apparently it was during the 1980s and 90s. So there you go. It's more contemporary than history, and that's uh, the new reason why uh, he wasn't mentioned. But either way, we'll have to do something uh, to make uh, make up for that uh, one day. Um, moving on to the DP camps, so we have um, that I titled it by the way, uh, "Liberated but Not Free: The Story of the DP Camps." It's not my own words. I just want to clarify that. I just thought it was such a great, um, really encapsulates the whole survivor situation after the war. It was said, it's an actual quote, from Abraham Klausner, a a U.S. uh, army chaplain, a Jewish army chaplain, who was there by the liberation of the camps. And Klausner saw the situation of the Jewish survivors, and he said, we've liberated them, but they're not free. And it's going to take a long time until they become free. And and, uh, that's to be explained in many ways, and we'll touch on some of that, excuse me, during the discussion um, of the DP camps. Um, but that really, uh, that really, that really says it all. Liberated but not free. And that's uh, Klausner's Abraham Klausner, U.S. Jewish uh, Jewish uh, Army chaplain. Either way, it is a huge topic. The DP camps, a very misunderstood topic, unfortunately, and we're only going to have time to barely scratch the surface. So I just want to put that out there, you know, a disclaimer, just so, again, if, if you feel like I didn't mention some important camp or figure or story, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's just too vast. It's such a massive topic. So uh, I'm just going to mention a few general points and a few stories. So I do want to clear up a few misconceptions also about the whole story of the DP camps. It's, there's, there's certain misunderstandings and also it's been politicized to a certain extent. Um, so what were the DP camps? What, what are they altogether? So the liberation of the, you know, the, the concentration camps by the Allied armies at the end of the war leads labor camps, concentration camps. And you have to understand there's thousands of concentration camps and labor camps um, that the Nazi system, the Nazi regime ran across Europe, not only in Germany, Austria, but also across Europe. They had them in France, they had them in Poland, in Russia, in Hungary, and everywhere. Everywhere that there were Nazis, there were camps. Um, Again, these are concentration camps, not the death camps. Death camps were exclusively for Jews, and they were located for in Poland and for existed for a relatively short period of time, and uh, were relatively small, and there were very few of them. There was only uh, four exclusively death camps and two that were dual purpose, both concentration camp and death camps, Auschwitz and Majdanek. Either way, that I discussed uh, 
way back in the beginning of Jewish history settlements. I don't even remember what that episode was called, but uh, about the um, about the death camps. Either way, so um, so the liberation of these thousands of camps, many non-Jews and Jews and and uh, from all over occupied Europe by the Allied armies. By in the east, it's by the Soviet Red Army. And they liberate most of the camps because they're liberating everything in Eastern Europe and everything in Poland and everything in Eastern Germany. And then in Western Europe, you have the British and the United States militaries uh, um, liberating the camps there. So there's the moment of liberation, which is a different story. And then there's the returning home. It's another story, meaning uh, the attempt to return home and many Many uh, survivors did return home, especially in Western Europe and communist-held areas. It was much more difficult to return home, um, such as in Poland. Um, and those are also stories, and those are, they're important ones. And perhaps we need another episode about liberation and another episode about returning home. But we're not talking about returning home or liberation. And this one we're going to speak about, we're going to focus on the DP camps. Um, by the way, there's another another uh, stage. There's the emigration from the DP camps to new horizons, to new homes and new countries and to the United States and to Israel and to Australia and South America and other places. That's another story. So there's lots of stuff going on kind of simultaneously and we're going to zero in on one slice of that history, which is the DP camps. So the, the, um, the, the, American and British armies, they establish displaced persons camps because for, for all the people that are displaced because of the Nazis and they need to, to put them somewhere until they can figure out where they're going to go. So why are people displaced and, and who are these people? So first of all, we're talking about millions and millions of people. We're talking about at least 8 million, some sources say 11 million Millions of people. Now, obviously, if we're talking about such tremendous numbers of displaced persons, um, we're not talking about Jews, uh, because there were not nearly that many Jews in the entire Europe at the time. By the time the war was over, six million Jews had been killed. That was two-thirds of the Jewish population of Europe. Um, so you, you're talking about mainly non-Jews. Why were there so many non-Jews who were displaced? Um, mainly because of slave labor. The Nazis had taken millions of people for slave labor, prisoners of war. Um, many had had run away from Eastern Europe because of communism. You know, for instance, if you were a Ukrainian nationalist, it's very likely that you would not want to be in the Ukraine when the Stalinist uh, Soviet Union took over your country. So many of them ran away at the end of the war. So you're talking about millions and millions of people, of whom about a quarter of a million, 250,000, were Jews. So they, they, these displaced people were put into these camps by the Americans and British. Why not the Soviets? The Soviets liberated, like I said, the majority of the camps. The Soviets didn't believe in the displaced persons being entitled to be in a camp, they simply told them they provided medical care and food, and then go home. Get out of here. Go go home. Home means wherever town you come from, just go go back home. That was their policy. And you can want to escape from the Soviet Union and cross the border into the American zone, then go for it. But but we're not establishing any 
somewhat permanent camp for people who are displaced persons. So it was exclusively the Americans and the British who did so. And um, so there's kind of like three sides of the story of the DP camps. Number one, there's from the point of view of the Allies, the Allied military, the Allied governments, the eventually the West German government, the United Nations, these are all agencies, the International Red, Cl- Red Cross, in other words, from outside, from an administrative point of view and from a humanitarian point of view, outsiders who are looking over and establishing, essentially, and then eventually running these camps, um, what's their perspective? What's the purpose? What's the goals? What's the, what, are their, what are the needs in these camps? That's one, one point of view. A second point of view is the point of view of the Jewish organizations who assisted also from the outside. The, primarily the joint, the Joint Distribution Committee. They provide the lion's share of the funding, funding uh, of these camps from beginning to end, uh, from literally from day one until they were all closed. They, they, they were the main people involved, uh, the joint, but there are lots of other organizations as well as the kind of Zionist organizations, the Jewish Agency. Um, there's, there's Jewish soldiers and chaplains in the Allied armies who are very involved in both in their capacity as members of the military of the Allied armies, but also as Jews. And then there's smaller organizations like the Vat Hatzala of the religious Jewish community in the United States and other such organizations as well, many, 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 many of them. And then there's a third point of view is from the survivors themselves. And that's, again, one of the misconceptions that the survivors were not passive uh, um, players in the story of the DP camps. They were very active um, they didn't just wait for for what the allies and what these and what what the joint is going to do for them. They took initiative in every single sense, in an administrative sense, in the political sense, in in uh, in education, in religious needs, in 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 uh, in literally in every sphere. Very often, in fact, most often, it was the survivors' own initiative in organization, in establishing the infrastructure, and then. The joint would provide funding, and then the the uh, UN or the American Army or whoever was in charge at the time would would uh, oversee the activities. But but the survivors, and that's an important point to emphasize, is that they they were the ones who took their own fate into their hands, and which is not something to be taken for granted because these people were uh, you know had just been liberated. Many of them needed medical care, and all of them actually. And uh, were starving, were weighed, you know, they had just been on death marches and, and, um, were in a very terrible situation. And not to, not, not to even mention the PTSD that they all experienced. Many of them were the sole survivors of their families. And here they come along and take, and take initiative in, uh, in trying to rebuild within the framework of these, uh, displaced persons camps. Some of the more famous camps was there was a, a camp called Feldafing. Which is a which is the first all Jewish camp. We'll get to why there was all Jewish camps, and they were initially it was not segregated. It was Jews mixed with non-Jews survivors, um, and uh, we'll get to, we'll get to that in a minute. But Feldafing was the first all Jewish camp. In fact, General Eisenhower visited the camp in September. Um, ben Gurion, when he visited the. DP camps, uh, one of the camps he visited in October of 1945, of course I'm talking about, uh, he visited in, uh, in, uh, in Feldafing as well. Landsberg was another, another famous uh, camp, but the, probably the most famous one in the American zone was Ferenwald, 
It was the largest also. It had close to 6,000 uh, Jewish uh, survivors at its peak. It was also an exclusively Jewish camp. Um, towards the end of 1945, it was turned into a Jewish camp. Um, in fact, the administrator was a former U.S. infantry uh, officer who was in the Battle of the Bulge, and he was Jewish. He came. He grew up in the Lower East Side. His parents, his name was Henry Cohn, um, and his parents were Lithuanian Jewish immigrants from Ivia, the little little Litvische shtetl of Ivia, which is the same place that Reb Chaim Grzynski came from. So Henry Cohn's parents came from there, and he is the U.S. military administrator of Ferenwald. Um, so that's it's a nice uh, tidbit. Um, so they th- this was one of the largest exclusively Jewish camps. Um, in fact, many of the camps had committees appointed by the survivors themselves to help run the camp. And very often they were democratically elected. And democratically elected, you saw them voting along party lines from pre-war. So you have the Jewish political parties of Poland from pre-war going right back into action uh, in the post-war. And these committees um, literally divided along party lines. You have the Aguda and their, their representatives in the camp administration, and the Bund, and the Zionists, with the same fighting, by the way, and, uh, and, uh, and disputes, and they go right back to business. And, then, and that expresses itself in every uh, manifestation of the culture of the camp that the survivors uh, uh, initiate. There's newspapers, Yiddish newspapers, Hebrew newspapers. Interestingly enough, what was on the rise before the war of of the language of the country, Pol- Polish and Poland and Lithuanian and Lithuania and and so on. So that 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 almost disappeared in the DP camps. Almost all the newspapers were and, and, and signs were almost not always, but almost always exclusively in Yiddish or in uh, Hebrew. Um, so that's an interesting, uh, um, also an interesting tidbit. But culture flourishes in education. And all of these things was a reactivation of pre-war politics because they were uh, activated along party lines. The largest and most famous Jewish DP camp was not in the American zone, it was in the British zone. And that was the Bergen-Belsen one. It was right outside the uh, the Bergen-Belsen um, uh, concentration camp, which the British had liberated. And... Um, and, uh, and 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 here the the DP camp was established nearby. It was the only Jewish DP camp in the British zone. It was the largest Jewish DP camp of all. There was over eleven thousand Jews there. The head of the committee, the Jewish committee, like I said, it was run by the survivors. Was a survivor from Bendin in Poland named Yosef Rosenschaft. Ben Gurion visited this camp also in 1945. It's interesting when Ben Gurion visited these camps. So the survivors, he was the head of the Jewish agency at the time, so many of the survivors asked him what's going to be with getting visas. And the British were not providing any visas to get into Palestine. And he, he took out the, uh, the, his, um, his, uh, his pockets, his, show his empty pockets. He, you know, showed, he said, I wish I could provide you with visas, but I don't have any to give you. Um, that was part of the tragedy that they were stuck there in these DP camps with nowhere to go. Many of the Jews could not be repatriated to their uh, countries uh, because uh, their countries had been taken over by Stalin, by part of the communist bloc. 
and of course in most places, especially in Poland um, and other parts of Eastern Europe, so the entire communities were wiped out, entire families were wiped out, there's nothing to return to, um, even if they wanted to go back, even if they wanted to live under communism, but there was nothing there, there was, it was completely, had been uh, destroyed, and the Nazis had really decimated the population there. Um, so these camps are established in Germany, Austria, Italy, the um, the and uh, and the Eisenhower as the uh, you know the head of the, the head of the U.S. military or the Allied military in in, in occupied uh, Germany. Uh, so he was oversaw the camps as well. He also visited several of the camps, like I said, um, in Bavaria. The general of the Third Army, George Patton, was in charge of the DP camps, and because he expressed a lot of anti-Semitism and kept the prisoners under harsh uh, conditions and military discipline and forced repatriation. He tried to force the Jewish prisoners even when they um, did not want to and were unable to go back to their host countries. And eventually that, that was Patton's downfall. He was relieved of his duties and, um, and he left. He had a small, short appointment in the 15th Army and then he died in a car crash a couple of months later in Germany. He's buried in Luxembourg which is unimportant information. Either way, so, so they, they, the DP camps were under uh, their administration. It eventually leaves the U.S. military to the U.N. There was a new agency called the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, which still exists till today, UNRRA, U-N-R-R-A. And eventually it was transferred in 1947 to another new agency, brand new agency, called the IRO, the International Refugee Organization, in which, in turn, several years later, turned it over to the West German government, who they uh, they ran the camps. Now, you have to understand, these camps lasted for several years. Um, the camps, you know, emptied out. They, they, they fluctuated in their population, but they emptied out after the State of Israel was founded and after the United States started allowing in a limited amount of refugees in 1949, 50, 51. So 1950, by 1951, most of the camps were closed down. But um, uh, in 1953, there were still, in 52, 53, there were still several camps being closed down. And Ferenwald, they consolidated the last remaining DPs there, Jewish DPs there, was only closed in 1957. So after, it's 12 years after the war, the last, ones, the last one was closed down. Um, there's waves of arrival and exit from the camps. It's a lot moving. It's a very uh, dynamic population, very uh, moving, constantly moving. Um, the non-Jews had pretty much left within the first year or two because most of them had a country to go to. Not all of them, but most of them had a country to go to, to go back to, and they and they did so. Um, the most of the Jews stayed much longer. Um, the Jews organized themselves into a Sheiris Hapleta organization. Today we use Sheiris Hapleta as a as a, uh, a, a a title to refer to the survivors, but it was actually the name of an organization that they themselves had formed that represented the Jewish members to the authorities in the DP camps. And there was a system of self-governance and overseeing that all sorts of needs were provided. The organization lasted until 1951. The head of it was a fellow by the name of a survivor named... Uh, Zalman Greenberg, he was a Jewish radiologist from Lithuania who survived Dachau, and he became the head of this committee. They even organized conferences with representatives from 46 different DP camps. 
He eventually moved to Israel. He became the head of the Balinson Hospital in Petah Tikva, and then he moved to the United States where he did a career shift and became a psychiatrist. Either way, that's, that's Zalman Greenberg. But what happens is, is that the, what the most, the biggest change that happens in the DP camps is the Harrison Report. Harrison Report was a lawyer who worked in the Roosevelt administration named Earl Harrison, was appointed by Roosevelt shortly before his death, um, to be oversee the situation of refugees in Europe with the upcoming end of the European theater of operations. On June 18th, 1945, now remember, the dates here are a bit important, so the war in Europe ends on May 9th. Um, so a month later, a little over a month later, June 18th, the Jewish agency submits a very sharp report to the British with a request for 100,000 Jewish survivors to be allowed into Palestine. Bevan, Ernst Bevan, the, uh, the foreign secretary, rejects it. From a Zionist perspective, one of the ironies is, is that might have been the greatest thing that happened. Because if they had accepted it, if the British accepted it, the 100,000 would have been their request, and that would have been the end of the story. But because Bevan rejected it, so that led to a whole sequence of events, which eventually led to the British returning the mandate of, the, of Palestine back to the UN. And, uh, and, uh, but if they had accepted the 100,000 survivors to come in, that would have been the end of the story. The, the Jewish agency would have been happy with that and, 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 and moved on from there. So that's an irony. Either way, four days later, June 22nd, Earl Harrison is sent by Truman to do an inspection of the camps and to submit a report. So he leaves in July with a delegation that included two representatives of the joint. And the report's findings, which was submitted at the end of August, was a strong condemnation of the military administration. I'm going to quote a few short paragraphs directly from the report. Um, Many displaced persons are living under guard behind barbed wire fences, including some of the most notorious concentration camps. Many of them have no clothing other than their concentration camp pajama-like garb. Most of them have been separated three, four, or five years, and they cannot understand why the liberators should not have undertaken immediately the organized effort to reunite them with their families. Many of the buildings are clearly unfit for winter. We appear to be treating the Jews as the Nazis treated them, except that we do not exterminate them. They are in concentration camps in large numbers under our military guard instead of SS troops. One is led to wonder whether the German people seeing this are not supposing that we are following or at least condoning Nazi policy. It's just a couple of short quotes. Very, very strong. Um, And then he lobbied for the acceptance of his report for quite a bit of time afterwards. A very interesting person. Parenthetically, I just want to mention, after Operation Torch, when the U.S. Army invaded North Africa earlier on in the war, 1942, end of 1942. So the United States military in North Africa, they kept the Vichy regime, regime Nuremberg-style laws in place against the Jews of North Africa for quite a while. They didn't repeal that legislation until there was public outcry for them to change it, like about a, over half a year later. Um, so that's, that's that, that was three years earlier in, in, during the war, North Africa. And hopefully we'll expand on that uh, when we have the opportunity to discuss uh, the story of North African Jewry and uh, during the Holocaust. So what, the major finding of the of the Harrison report was was to have huge ramifications. Was his recommendation Harrison's recommendation to separate the Jews from the non-Jews? Until that point, 
they, the, the, from the American military, this made the most sense. The segregation was by country. If you, whatever country you originated from, whatever country you were a citizen from, that's what camp and section of the camp you were in. So what would happen? Let's say, for instance, a Jew came from an area of Lvov. Today, Lvov was in, after the war, was in Ukraine. So Ukrainian nationalists who ran away from from his hometown of Lvov when when the Soviet Union took over at the end of the war. So he's also a displaced person. Now that Ukrainian nationalist was very likely to have been a Nazi collaborator during the war who probably shot Jews um, at the edge of the Einsatzgruppen pits uh, as a as a uh, as a collaborator with the Nazis. So here you have an, a bizarre situation where a Jew from Lvov and a Ukrainian from Lvov are roommates in the barracks of the DP camp because they're dividing it by nationality. So you have him together with the Nazi collaborator and the Nazi victim are together in the same barracks. So to Harrison, that was a bizarre situation. So Harrison recommended that they segregate the Jews, which was against the the um, the uh, the idea the, uh, the of of the whole American military that they that it would be the Jews aren't their own entity; they're not a nationality yet. There is no Jewish country yet. But now that the Jews are separated, that was to have, you know, that now they were seen for the world to see as a separate entity, which was also to have uh, results. Um, and here, again, I'm going to quote from the report itself. Until now, they were separated by country, often with former Nazi collaborators running from the Soviets. The first and plainest need of these people is a recognition of their actual status, and by this I mean their status as Jews. Refusal to recognize the Jews as such has the effect in this situation of closing one's eyes to their former and more barbaric persecution. So that was his, um, that was his, his recommendation. Now within the, um, within the camp, uh, now a lot of, a lot of them were implemented. The British were not happy with his report, but a lot in the American sphere, they implemented a lot of his, uh, recommendations. But from the Jewish perspective, from the survivors perspective themselves, there's a flourishing within the camp of political life, uh, religious life. There's yeshivas, there's mikvahs, there's all by the survivors themselves with funding from the joint, from Varat Salah, from other organizations. Um, social life, education, there's the network of ort schools, which was already pre-war, and there are vocational schools and regular schools. Not only that, but there's Jewish historians who are survivors, people like Philip Friedman, who survived by hiding in Lvov, outside the Lvov ghetto, and others, who who went and they start to gather testimony. The first testimonies are gathered. Histories, the first histories of the Holocaust, of individuals, of communities, of camps. Um, the original booklets published by survivors of testimony. You have to understand, I can't, I can't over, I can't exaggerate the importance of, of this original testimony when things were fresh, when it was collected by the survivors themselves in the DP camps, um, these things are in archives today, mainly in Yad Vashem, mainly written in Yiddish, very uh, uh, terse, short testimonies, very blunt also in a way. Um, and, the, and, the, um, and, there's, uh, and, and the, all this is going on, right? And, and there's a battle for souls. Everyone, uh, every, every political uh, organization is trying to kind of use the survivors as leverage for their political means, unfortunately. But um, but the, the the survivors themselves are building up their religious life. You can't speak about the their 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 religious, social, political, educational life. Um, you can't speak about the DP camps 
without mentioning one of the heroes of the DP camps, was that was the Kleisenberger Rebbe. Now, of course, we have to devote another episode to the Kleisenberger Rebbe, because Yehuda Halberstam, who himself was a survivor and lost everything during uh, the war. But his activities in the DP camps were, breathed a new life into survivors. He establishes the Yeshiva Sheiris Aplita. He's in, he's in uh, Ferenwald. And he uh, establishes a whole network, a girls' school. And he, he famously spends an entire Erev Yom Kippur giving uh, brachas to orphan girls, survivors, who had came to his barracks and begged him to give them a bracha because they have no father anymore to give them that Erev Yom Kippur blessing that every parent gives their child. And he spends his entire Erev Yom Kippur giving these brachas to these children to these children and he becomes a father to literally and that's his influence be, begins there and he ignores his own personal pain that he had experienced and sustained to actively throw himself not only at the infrastructure level to establish all these institutions and educational place and and, and teaching but also to individuals he was there to be uh, again something that we have to speak about another time, but um, just I, I wanted to mention that. I want to mention a couple of, of short stories um, that, that took place there because to get a real feel from the inner life of the, uh, of the, uh, the DP camps. Um, there's a story of a group of, of uh, Ger Polish, uh, Polish Bachrim, single most of most of most of the most of the survivors were the, were within a certain age range. Most of the survivors were between eighteen and forty five, um, understandably so. The only reason that there were children of school age in the there were a lot of babies because there was a big baby boom after the war. A lot of marriages, a lot of children being born. Um, but the um, but the uh, there was a group of ger ger. Uh, I'm sorry. The only reason there was Jewish children who were of school age in these camps was because of children in hiding, and even more so because of families that had escaped into the Soviet Union during the war and now were, patri- were repatriated back to Poland and then left communist Poland and uh, came to the DP camps in 1946 and 1947. So there's a group of Ger-Bachrim, from Poland, and they publish, you know, the United States military published a shas, the survivor shas. They published... A uh, the, the the American Army publishes the fund funded the publishing of a shas. So there's a bunch of svarim published in the DP camps, and these this group of gerers published a svasemes, and they write in the title page that uh, even with everything going on around us, but our vision we have in front of us the image of the Rebbe, and the reason that we're able to keep on going and 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 ignore everything that's happening around us is because we have this image of the Rebbe, the Rebbe the Emrehemes, who was still alive uh, in Yerushalayim at that time, and that's why we're able to 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 keep going. Now, what, the, what were they referring to? There was a lot of, you know, you're talking about a population, a survivor population that had just uh, gone through, uh, you know, everything that they had experienced in the post-trauma and the destruction of their life, the destruction of their humanity, and it was very hard to go back to normal life. And a lot of them struggled with it. And there's a lot of crime and gangs and black markets was was flourishing and the lawlessness of what was going on in Germany at the time. 
and all kinds of other things. And you had to like be very strong to ignore all that and try to rebuild your life and return to humanity, return to civilization, return to religious life, return to to family life, to be able to rebuild a family. That's something that can't be taken for granted. There's a lot of other stuff happening at that time. Um, uh, Rabinsian Lapiansky, who's the father of Rabaran Lapiansky, the Rashiva in Silver Spring. So Rabinsian Lapiansky was a survivor from Kovna, from the Kovna ghetto. He had been a student in Slabatka many years earlier. So he was in a DP camp after he had lost his wife and his children, his whole family. And here he, he wanted to give up. He wasn't ready to move on. And the Yiddish theater had a rebirth in the DP camps. And he went to the Yiddish theater to a performance one night. And the, uh, and on the stage was the story of the, 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 that was on stage that night was, was a story of survivors, uh, discussing, uh, should they get remarried? And was it a betrayal of their former family, of the family that had been murdered? Is it a betrayal of that family if they go ahead and marry someone else and start a new family? And in the final scene of that play, the ghosts of the survivors, the two, the, the, the bride and the groom, the Hassan and Kala who were getting married, their former families come to their chuppah as ghosts and wish them mazel tov. And at that moment, Rabinsin Lobiansky started to cry and he grabs the person next to him and he says, Zevet kumen in unvinshin mazel tov. They're going to come and wish me mazel tov. And at that moment, he decided to remarry, and he did so. And uh, he had a family, and, you know, look what he was able to produce. Shoshana Rashkovsky was a Hungarian survivor, and she goes ahead and did something that was unthinkable before the war. She went ahead and married a Galiziano survivor. So you have the miracles happening in the, uh, you know, the uh, desperate times, desperate measures. You have Hungarians marrying Polish Jews and starting new families. But she didn't want to start a new family. She wanted companionship. She wanted to get married but she did not want to have children. When she found out that she was expecting a child, she describes this in her testimony, she tried to abort the child because she said, I heard too many children screaming in Auschwitz and I can't bear to hear a child cry because it's going to remind me of the children screaming in Auschwitz. And uh, she couldn't handle it. But then when her baby was born, she said, I was going to abort this baby. This is going to be the future. This is going to be a new life. And he And she would take this baby of hers, to the mass graves. The British military had buried the Jews uh, who had died in, 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 in Bergen-Belsen, also even after the liberation, about 14,000 Jews in Bergen-Belsen died after the liberation because they were so weak and, um, and, and, and they, didn't, they didn't have the means to take care of so many all at once. Um, so um, she brings them, she brings this little boy in, 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 in our walks, and the walk to the park, in Bergen-Belsen, was to go to the mass grave. And she said, when you grow up, Maishala, I'm going to tell you all the stories about what I did to survive. And then she says, you know what happened? I didn't tell him a single story. I didn't want him to, you know, I, I decided, and that's when many survivors made that decision, to not uh, speak about it uh, to the next generation. Um, but um, there's all kinds of things going on in the... Uh, in the uh, in the DP camps, there's yeshivas that are established. In fact, they said a joke that the Novartic yeshiva that was established by Gershon Liebman in the Bergen-Belsen camp was probably the nicest Novartic yeshiva yet, uh, because it was funded by the joint and by the Vadat Salah, it was taken care of. Um, and like I said, there's a lot of black marketing going on. 
Um, in fact, I spoke, I once interviewed a, a survivor who settled down in Germany after the war. How did he settle down in Germany? Because he started a business while he was in the DP camp on the black market. It was successful. He turned it into a legit business. He left the DP camp, settled down in, uh, I think it was in Munich and later in Frankfurt. Um, and sports, right? And to, in fact, to many survivors, to be able to go back to, to sporting events, to, to play soccer, was the biggest testimony to survival because now they were physically strong enough. They had rehabilitated themselves to the point where they could, where they could, uh, where they could physically compete in, in, in a sporting event, interestingly enough. Um, like I said, the Yiddish theater, um, music, uh, to get, uh, there was a whole campaign to get kosher food and talis, sidorims, farim for these yeshivas and shuls that, that were springing up and Beis Yaakov's. Um, there's literally a million stories that I could go on. I already uh, went over time, uh, so I'm going to stop here. But many uh, um, rabbis and uh, bezdins are set up, ad hoc bezdins of rabbis who had survived the war. And again, so their own families were gone. And what are they busy with? With iguna questions, with yichus questions, with all kinds of halachic issues. I remember uh, reading that uh, Bishu Moshe Aronson um, who was, was a famous uh, Polish Rav survivor, Sachar Shavar Chassid, he wrote that he, when in Auschwitz, he promised to never become a, to never be a rabbi again. He's never going to paskin Shiloh's again. After the questions that he got during the war, he's never going to do it again. What happened? He's in the DP camp, and there's a need for a Rav to paskin about Igunas and about other things. So he goes ahead and becomes a Rav again, because that's, he, that's what he feels is his, is his responsibility. So in summary, I just want to... Um, to, uh, to again to to finish off here, we have the different stages. We have the initial stage, which was providing food and medical care, so that they should be be able to be alive. The next stage is trying to get them to either go back to their home countries, and that wasn't always successful, so they stayed in the DP camps. The next stage is the transfer of control from the military to the UNRWA to the IRO. And then, uh, and, and, uh, and it's, it's a three-way administration. There's the UNRWA or the IRO. There's the day-to-day managing. The joint does most of the funding. And then the military still provides security and supplies and transportation, all kinds of things like that. So it's always a three-pronged uh, administration. And then later on, there's the long-term in the camps. There's the establishment of schools. There's the establishment of memory. There's the Yemezi Karang. There's all these signs we have of Zachary, Sasharas, Al-Khamalik, and establishing a day to commemorate the Holocaust, right? That doesn't happen uh, first in, in the United States or in Israel. It happens in the DP camps themselves, from the initiatives from the survivors themselves. Um, and then there's the closing of the camps. There's the eventually getting out, going to Israel, going to America, going to other countries, and, uh, and the closing up of the camps. So that was just, like I said, scratching the surface of the story of the DP camps. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, lectures. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.